As Memorial Day approaches, we remember and honor those who died while serving their country. A few years ago, I had the privilege to listen to two World War II veterans as they spoke with reverence about those who did not return from their time in uniform over 70 years ago. Well, I'd like to honor these two heroes as well. Both Roscoe Mitchell and Art Scheip have recently passed away. Please enjoy this interview from 2013 and find a way this Memorial Day to honor those who gave the ultimate sacrifice. Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheip. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Well, being Memorial Day weekend, we turn our focus to leaders of a previous time. I am joined today by two veterans of World War II, Roscoe Mitchell and Art Scheip. Roscoe and Art, welcome. Thanks for coming. Glad to be here. Yeah. I'm glad to have you here because I'm always glad to speak with World War II veterans. Uh, first off, thanks for your service those many years ago, Roscoe and uh, Art. Uh, Art Scheip sounds like a familiar last name to me. We might even be related. Is that a, is that a fact? Full disclosure I, for my audience, I guess. I happen to be his uncle. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, we'll get that out of the way. But it's still, it's still a good story, a good reason to have you as a guest here today. And like I said, uh, we're, we're here because it's Memorial Day weekend. You two experienced combat in World War II, and we're fortunate enough to return home. And, and what we hope to do today is honor those who gave you know, the ultimate sacrifice during the war and did not return. And, and you guys have shared your stories to a few groups uh, here and there around town. And what I really want to do today is, is just by way of letting you guys talk and share your experiences, and we'll honor those, those veterans that did not come home. And that's what Memorial Day really is all about. It's not about selling sheets or washing machines. So I'm glad you're here. So I'll just ask you, Roscoe, right off the bat here, you served, tell us a little bit about your service, where you served, and what you did, what your role was in World War II in Europe, oh, right? Okay. Yeah, I entered the service in April 19, 1943, and I was discharged October 2nd, 1945, and my, I started at Fort Lewis, I was, went to Fort Lewis, and Fort Lewis, we went to uh, Fresno, California, where we had basic training, we were there for a couple of months, and a couple, and then we went to Lower Field in Denver, Colorado for a couple of months to learn about bomb racks, bombs, and guns. From there, I went to uh, Tyndallfield, Florida, where we were, uh, in a gunnery school, and the gunnery school consisted of lots of 50-caliber machine guns firing. We had air-to-air and air-to-ground, and it was my first ride in an airplane. When and, you were being trained, was your first ride in an airplane? Yes. And you had signed up? Did you volunteer to be in the Army Air Corps? Were you drafted? or no, Yeah, and, I was drafted, yes. And then... After you were drafted, did you get to pick your assignment? Or, no. So you just ended up as a... They give us a, a square and round test, and evidently I did good enough on the test to give into the Air Corps. Okay. So what was? So then you were on a, assigned to what kind of plane? Oh, well, finally, I, after gunnery school, we went up to Salt Lake City, Utah, where we were assigned crews. I was a nose gunner on the B-24, and then after our training, we went to uh, up to Wichita, Kansas, picked up B-24, and uh, headed for England. We went from Wichita to Grinnerfield, New Hampshire, to uh, Goose Bay, Labrador, where the, it was like flying in a tunnel. The snowbanks were about 15 feet high on each side of the runway. Oh. And from uh, Goose Bay, we went to Iceland, where 
the wind was blowing 90 miles an hour all the time. It's never snowed straight down. It was always horizontal. <laughs> and from uh, Iceland, we went to uh, landed Valley Wales, where we lost the airplane. And from Valley Wales, we went to uh, Stone, England, and we were there for a few days. Then we took a ferry over to Northern Ireland. And why we went over there, we were shooting the seagulls over there most <laughs> of the time. And we D-Day, we flew from Ireland to England, and there was a thousand planes in the air. And after uh, we landed in England, then we got on a truck and rode to the base where we were stationed at 11 in England. There we started about the 8th of June, I flew the first mission, and when we went over, we were a replacement crew, and I flew my first five missions as a nose gunner with a... I had a replacement crew on the next mission after I quit flying with them. They were shot down. Really? Yeah. So was that on a B-24? Is that what yeah, you started Yeah, it was a B-24, yes. And then you changed assignments to a B-17? Well, after, I flew nine missions in a B-24, and then we uh, transferred to B-17s. And I was a, a toggler gunner or a B-17. And a toggler gunner, uh, besides the gunner, I... Uh, we flew number three position all the time, and when the lead plane opened his bob doors, I flipped the switch and opened our bob doors, and when I see his bobs drop, I flipped the switch and our bobs dropped. So you're the guy that sits in the nose of that, those clear noses, nose cones of yes. the B-24 and the B-17. Yes. Well, so B-24 you're right up front. had a turret, but the B-17 was just in a plexiglass dome. Yeah. Wow. So you were right up in front of it. Yeah. And I seen... Well, the flak was thick all the time. And in this plastic dome, I got, one time I counted 18 holes. And on the airplane, I think the most we ever counted from flak was uh, 65 holes, something like that, in the airplane. When you landed, but you, you landed land, safely yeah. back. Yeah. Hundreds of holes in your plane. Yes. And 18 maybe just up in your Just in the nose area where I was sitting oh, where that. When the flak burst, of course, it went in all directions. And then on one trip of the B-17, the, our tail wheel was operated on worm gear. Well, a piece of flak tore all the gears off. Yeah. So the engineer and I went back, and we uh, cranked it down as far as we could get it, but it wasn't all the way down. But fortunately, it was down far enough so that the tail, the tail didn't... Drag on the ground. When you landed, you would have... When we landed, So yes. you guys manually cranked down that... Yeah. Oh, wow. We had it cranked down far enough so the tail didn't scrape the ground, fortunately. Well, the, and this tail wheel was only about probably four or five feet from the tail gunner. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah. A, guy, there's a guy who sits in the back in a B-17. Yeah, yeah there's a tail gunner. There's also a guy who sits in a belly turret, right? Wasn't yeah. there? I, I, so you I don't want to do a belly landing in a B-17. Well, I could tell you a story about that too. <laughs> on the on the B seventeen, the, uh, the landing gear and the ball turret were hydraulics, and the ball turret probably extended about a foot and a half or two feet below the airplane, maybe three feet. I, I'm not sure, but on the one mission, the hydraulics. Uh, now I I wasn't on this plane. On one mission, the hydraulics were shot out, and the landing gear 
wouldn't come down, and the ball turret wouldn't come up, and the gunner was in the ball turret, Uh-oh. and the pilot was forced to land the plane, make a belly landing, which wiped the gunner out of the ball turret. Mm. It was mm. just one of those things that happened. This is uh, so you're flying. This is the Eighth Air Force, then. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And another mission I seen that was uh, it was above us, probably oh maybe fifty yards, a hundred yards ahead of us, and the the planes were flying. And all it was the left plane. His wing dipped down into the cockpit of the plane just below him. Uh oh. And when he righted his plane, about ten or fifteen feet broke off of the wing, and I, I'm i sure that the pilot and the co-pilot and the gunner were killed because it, well, it went right in there. And then both planes went into a spiral, and we've counted about 15 shoots of people bailed out. But on the B-17, when it went into a spiral, after a while, the tail section would break off, and it would just gently floats to the ground. If you were in the tail section of the airplane, it didn't it wouldn't hurt you any, except when it hit the ground. Then another thing, this is back to the B twenty fours. We were probably fo- fogged in in England for probably for three or four days and the lead crews were re- required to make a practice mission. They had a site in northern England where they could make a practice mission. Well, two planes collided over the target. And when our plane was coming back, I was walking down the path or road, and I heard this roaring noise coming. And I looked up, and there's a plane coming on fire and out of control. Well, and all of us, I seen three bodies jump out of the plane. And the pilot, the co pilot, the bombardier failed to take their parachutes with them. And, of course, the parachutes they had left in the back end of the plane. And there was six gunners bailed out and the navigator bailed out, which did go down with the plane. So, you know, seeing story, you know, all that happened, how many missions did you, you count these in missions, right, each time you flew over Europe? I flew 33 missions. 33 missions. Yes. I mean, yeah, nine in the B-24 and 24 in the B-17. There's a, it's pretty grim, but they talk about a life expectancy, right, or, or what you can expect to survive and how many missions, right? I mean, so well, you... It was about 60% uh, casualties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, it's kind of sobering, and people don't think about that these days, so I'm glad you're sharing that with us, and, and so, uh, it's, it's different. So, you you know, the people just don't hear these stories. I'm glad no. you're here today to, to tell us about it. We bombed a lot of oil refineries. We all know that the Germans run out of fuel. And uh, on and Ma- we were at Magdeburg, just, I don't know, north of Berlin. And we were about the third or fourth wave to go in. And I could see the flames coming up about 10,000 feet, I assumed. And the smoke was coming up higher. And... And we bought Dresden, Germany was an airplane factory, and it, we bought bridges, airplane factories, ball, bar, ball bearing factories. And uh, in August of 1944, when the Germans first brought their uh, 
jet soap. Mm. Of course, our fighters would, didn't have near the speed of the German jets. And the day that I, we see them, they flew over the top of the formation, and out, but they never attacked. I don't know why. But the next day, we didn't fly. And they attacked a group, and they wiped the group out. So, again, another near-miss story that, you know, a, a day later, a, a different plane, a different crew. I mean, but could have been you, but it was somebody else. It was somebody else, yeah. yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for so. So you were a staff sergeant, right? Is that, is that your official rank, a, a sergeant? Staff, I was staff sergeant, Staff yes. sergeant and a... And a a nose gunner and a toggleer yes. bombardier. That's a, yeah. Oh, great. Thanks for sharing. And Art, uh, uh, you got some, You wanted to tell another story you like or something? Well, I can tell uh, uh, a B-24 distant an RC. And uh, the B-24, well, both the same, they had uh, life rafts that deployed out of the top of the airplane. Well, in this case... Only one life raft deployed, and it was 10 people. There was five people for each life raft, and only one de- deployed. So they were in the water 18 hours, and the temperature of water in the sea is 43 degrees. And every 10 minutes, they shifted from water to life raft. Mm. Wow. And did you did, did find out that they... Rescue they, all of them or, or not? They, the nine men survived. Yeah, the, the British Air Sea Rescue picked them up the next day. And on two occasions, as I recall, the pl- planes were shot up bad. One went to Switzerland, Switzerland, and when we went back to the base and checked, they, they had taken all our clothes with them. <laughs> <laughs> and another case where they... Plane was shot up bad, and they went to uh, Sweden. Well, five of the crew members on this that went to Sweden married Swedish girls. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Well, we are talking this morning with Roscoe Mitchell and Art Scheib, two veterans of World War II, and listening to stories that we should all know and, and take a note of. Uh, we'll switch to Art. Art, what was your role? Uh, you were not over here; but you were in the Pacific. I was a gunner. I sat in a turret of a TBM Grumman Avenger torpedo plane flying off an approximately 900-foot-long Essex-class aircraft carrier. The Bunker Hill was a new ship, and we were the first air group on it. At that time, the complement of an Essex-class carrier was 91 planes, 36 fighters, 36 dive bombers, and 18 torpedo planes, plus one for the air group commander. The armament of a TBM at that time was one 50-caliber machine gun in each wing, controlled by the pilot. I had a 50-caliber machine gun in the turret, and the radioman had a 30-caliber down below that he fired out the tail. The bomb load of a TBM at that time, depending upon the mission, was 12 100-pound bombs, four 450-pound depth charges, four 500-pound bombs, 
or a 2,200-pound torpedo. The scuttlebutt was that we would have a milk run to get used to what it was like to be in combat. But it turned out to be a torpedo run against Jap shipping at Rabaul on November the 11th, 1943, Armistice Day. Now it's called Veterans Day. Yeah. It was reported that we made 13 out of 18 hits. That may or may not have been correct, but anyhow, none of the torpedoes exploded. At that time in the war, the submarines, destroyers, and aircraft torpedoes were all having ignition problems. Also, some of our planes couldn't drop their torpedoes. It was determined that the arming wire was too heavy. That was an easy fix to make. One of our pilots didn't drop his fish, and he made the unpardonable sin of going back alone to try again. Seven Jap Zeros jumped him. The only casualty was a slight scratch on the right arm of the pilot. Whoa. What kept that plane in the air, I'll never know. But he made it back and landed, and he still had the torpedo. Oh, no. But the plane had 213 holes in it. <laughs> Needless to say, we shoved it over the side. We got a communique from MacArthur saying that he had the Jap Air Force completely neutralized. But what happened? 150 Jap planes came out to attack our task force. I was down in the hangar deck replacing my ammo to get ready for our next flight when the planes came. I thought, should I be in my turret where I've got armor plate underneath me and behind me or not? I decided to go lay down by the bulkhead on the hangar deck. There were two 500-pound bombs landed nearby as near misses. They didn't cause any damage. So I went over the other side. I looked under the bulkhead, and there is where the 20-millimeter ammunition was stored. So I went back on the other side. <laughs> After things cooled down, I checked my turret, and there was a bullet hole in one side and out the other, just about where my head would have been. So if I had decided to stay in my turret, I probably wouldn't be here today. We next hit Nauru, a fertilizer plant, on December the 8th. Since it was across the national date line, it would have been December 7th, in the States. They started to call our ship the Holiday Express because it seemed that every time there was a holiday, we were in a major engagement. We jumped, we'd bombed Japanese shipping on both Christmas Day and New Year's Day. <laughs> we'd, after we dropped 
our bombs at uh, on the Japanese shipment on Japanese shipping on Christmas Day, we headed to Esperito Santos to replace our supplies, but we got uh, word that there were more ships in the harbor, so we went back and we bombed Japanese shipping on New Year's Day. When the task force was being assembled for the Marshall Islands invasion, one morning I looked off to the left and there was the battleship Iowa. I looked off to the right and there was the battleship New Jersey. They had joined the task force overnight. I said, my kid brother's supposed to be a storekeeper on the Jersey. So I went up to the signal bridge and had him send over a message to see if he was aboard. It came back affirmative. So I went to my pilot and I said, my brother's a storekeeper on the Jersey. How about if I go over to see him? He said, sure, go ahead. So I caught a motor whaleboat and went over and spent the day with my brother in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah, that's my father. I knew yeah, I would show up in this story. That's your father. Yeah. Out in the middle of the Pacific. Our first mission, our first mission was to bomb Kwajalein. We always flew in a V formation and my plane was <coughs> always the first. We dropped our bombs. The plane on my right was hit with anti-aircraft fire, and he never pulled out of his dive. The plane on my left was also hit, but he made a water landing 10 or 15 miles offshore. I think that President Bush should have done the same thing, but that's a different story. That's... All three got out of their plane and into the life raft. The rest of the squadron went back to the ship, but we stayed behind for two reasons. First, if these on the life raft were supposed to be picked up, it would be quite a challenge to find this tiny little life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And second... If the Japs sent out a gunboat or something else to try and take them captive, maybe our machine guns would discourage them. So we circled and we circled. After a while, I thought, what's keeping this plane in the air? <laughs> Finally, two planes from our squadron came out to relieve us. We established radio contact. <laughs> and then dropped a smoke bomb by the life raft and headed back home. We made a landing, but we ran out of gas taxiing down the flight deck. Oh, my. A war correspondent made a number of missions with us. We made a torpedo run against Jap ships at Truk. We dropped our fish, and he took some pictures as we were banking away. One made Life Magazine's Picture of the Week. It was our torpedo 
blowing up a Jap tanker in the harbor. Next, we bombed the airstrip at Tinian. After that, they asked us, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to Australia for some R&R, or do you want to go home? Needless to say, the overwhelming majority of the vote was, let's go home. So we sailed back to Pearl Harbor, and our air group was replaced. Roscoe and I are two of the lucky ones. We made it back. The true heroes are still over there. Wow. Thanks for those stories, Guy. I'm sure these are abbreviated, I have to tell the audience, because we only have so much time. But, you know, after the war and you you reflected on those close calls you both mentioned, people on your left and your right not not making it back, did it, I don't know, give you a different perspective on... um, after, especially after you came home, what Memorial Day was all about, and not only the World War II guys you served with, but World War I, Civil, all veterans and people that are in military uniforms? One of the things that disturbs me more than anything is that uh, when uh, one person is killed over in, uh, over in uh, Afghanistan or Iraq, uh, it makes the headlines of the papers. But when we were in the service, uh, it wasn't uh, a bit unusual to lose maybe a thousand people on a particular bombing mission over Germany or, as I say, in uh, lost planes on both sides of me uh, on one of our missions and uh, uh, the differential between the personnel that were lost then and now uh, just kind of boggles my mind. Yeah, it sounds so different uh, comparatively. And uh, the times of the country was so different, too. Everybody knew someone in, in uniform, and the, and everybody back home was sacrificing something because the way the culture changed. And today it's barely 1%, I think, of people are in uniform and none of us really make any sacrifice to help the country's cause. I mean, is there something that um, is, I don't know, the way you think of what a hero, you know, people say, oh, he's a hero. Is, is your definition of a hero different than other people's, do you think? I think it is. Uh, as I said, uh, we're two of the lucky ones. Uh, we made it back. The true heroes are still over there. I'm, I'm going to Germany the 17th of June. Um, my my grandson is uh, over there. He was, I don't know if I told you, he's a physics and astronomy instructor in, in uh, San Luis Obispo, California. He teaches at Pal, uh, Cal Poly Tech. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's over there now looking at the stars, <laughs> analyzing all the data he's taken down over the last couple, three years. And we're going over there June 17th and we're gonna we're gonna be there for 19 days. We're going to, to Heidelberg, to Paris, to Flandersfield, to the beach. To uh, we take a train from Paris to London, and then we're going to be in London the last four days. But my 
my grandson, my son and his wife, and my grandson and his lady are all, we're all going over together. Uh, and you're going to see some of the World War II historically significant yes, areas. Yes, we're going and- to visit the base that I flew out of during World War II. And well, we were over there in 1980, I think. My wife and I were. We went over there as a group of the the 487th has a uh, reunion every year. And in 1980, we had the reunion in in England, and we went back to the base then. Well, the 487th Bomb Group, that's part of the 8th Air Force you were in? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We have been talking this morning with uh, Staff Sergeant, I got that right, Roscoe Mitchell, a B-17 nose gunner Toggleer. Is that right? Okay. And Airman Second Class, is that right? Or is it Admiral? Aviation Machinist Mate. Okay, Art Scheip and a, a turret gunner on a Grumman TBM Avenger, right, that flew off the Bunker Hill in the South Pacific. Uh, both served our country in World War II, you know, and I, I, I just, um, Roscoe and Art, I just thank you so much for coming in today and sharing with us and letting us all know about, you know, the heroes of World War II that we're honoring uh, this Memorial Day. And gosh, Besides thanks for coming in, a bigger thanks to what you did for all of us, and really a bigger thanks to all those World War II veterans for what they did for freedom 70 years ago. I'd ask the listeners when they see a veteran, thank them for their service. Thank you so much for being here and sharing with us today. I am Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.